welcome to the Everything HR Owner to Owner podcast. My name is Felicia Harris, and I will be your host this morning. Now, you already know, owning a company or managing a company is complex. There are a zillion moving parts. And when you bring employees into the picture, things get even more complex. Whether you have one employee or 10,000 employees, it can be a challenge to keep it all running smoothly. And that's where everything HR come in. We do one thing. We are human capital experts. We're problem solvers. We make things simpler. And this complimentary podcast will provide you with the latest HR trends, whether you do business in your home state or across the United States. You'll be able to call in and talk with HR professionals about the issues that keep you up at night. But more importantly, you'll be able to hear best practices from other business owners that have been in your shoes. Now, today's topic is reducing business risk through smart legal strategy. And we have a special guest by the name of Elyria Adams. And I'm gonna turn it over to Elyria to give her the opportunity to tell you a little bit about herself and about her law firm. Elyria, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me and good morning. Uh, my name is Allerie Adams and I am an attorney with A Squared Legal Group. We're based in downtown Detroit. We are a minority and women certified law firm specializing in business law, labor and employment law, and intellectual property. We primarily assist small businesses by serving as outside general counsel. For businesses that have ongoing legal needs, but do not necessarily want the overhead associated with in-house counsel. So I assist with reviewing contracts, all different types, assisting with any type of possible employee matters, uh, such as litigation, and just overall making sure that the business is running smoothly from a legal standpoint and is compliant with all regulations. Awesome. Awesome. Now, Elyria, you know that as small business owners, we know our craft. You know, we know our products, our service, and those wonderful things. There are no particular classes or anything that we end up taking that tells us what things that we're required to do. And so when it comes to a legal aspect, can you tell us, you know, you, you touched on it that you're able to be there for for, for small business owners to be able to tap into your services um, there and assisting them with that area. Can you tell us what some of the, the different areas or different things that you see can be a challenge or an open risk for a business owner? Mm, some challenges that I can see just off the top of my head would be collections. A lot of business owners, sometimes you get those clients that are slow to pay the invoice that you submit to them or just refuse to submit the invoice. So I see that as a challenge with them trying to, for lack of a better term, motivate that client to pay that invoice. So that's where sometimes I have to step in and sort of act as a mediator, so to speak, but obviously trying to have my client's best interest at hand, which is getting them their money for the services they rendered. So in that instance, I would more than likely start off with sending a demand letter, but sometimes it can escalate to actual litigation. And so from that standpoint, the best way 
to alleviate that situation is to make sure you have an adequate contract in place that explicitly outlines the terms of the services you're going to render and what the payments for those said services are. So as long as you have that as your foundation, more than likely your case is a very strong one. And as long as the client is hopefully collectible, you will ultimately get your money back. Awesome. And in those contracts that you have with clients, um, should they end up having terms in there for late fees? Is there any type of, of criteria concerning the late fees that should be included inside of the contract? Yes, you definitely can have late fees included. If you submit an invoice and it's 30 days late, then you can explicitly state how much interest you're going to be tacking on to any unpaid amount as well as you can add explicit language that states that after 21 days, if you don't hear, if, the, if you don't hear back from the customer regarding any disputes they may have, you're going to assume that those invoices you submitted are adequate and truthful, which prevents them from coming back to you, say, three months later saying, oh, well, we never received this, or, oh, this actually service was never actually rendered to us. So that's also another another thing you can add in the payment terms section of your contract just to make sure you're protected and that there is no reduce any type of hiccup. Is there any issues, and, and this is just, is there any issues? So say, for instance, you have two customers two customers that they both relate, and you have late charges payment that's included in both of their contracts. For some reason, one client, you decide that you want to go ahead and give them a little bit of leeway and you credit them back. But the other one, you did not. If either, you know, the one that you did not, if there ends up being a legal proceedings for that, does the one that you the the client that you credited back is there even any precedence of being able to say you have to be equal across the board for all clients? No, no, no. If you did that, if using that same scenario, if that same client you were you know you typically would give them a little wiggle room, but then all of a sudden you started to maintain that hard deadline. Then in that instance, there could be a type of precedent based just based on past practice. But if it's two separate customers and let's say one was a referral and one you've had a long-term relationship with and one is sort of newer, if you want to treat one better than the other as far as their payment terms, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that from a legal perspective or from a professional perspective. It's something you may not want to do because people do talk. Absolutely. So it would just be probably best for you just to maintain whatever your terms are and apply that consistently with all your clients. And that would just make life a whole lot easier. Now, I know, actually, this, this came up, uh, we have a, a, just to kind of catch everyone up, we have a, a women's networking group that we meet once a month. And then she came up with one of the business owners, and I won't repeat their name because, but I know we both know of them. They actually end up falling victim to someone that was had been contracted to do their website, and they end up paying them like twenty one thousand dollars. 
Now the person, they cannot find them anywhere. How can the, it, the question came up is how can a business owner protect themselves from falling victim to those that are basically preying on them to give them money and not produce any goods or services? Is there anything that, that they can safeguard themselves from that happening that they should look out mm-hmm. for? Well, definitely seek out referrals or ask them for references just to start off the bad if they're just someone you hear about or just they they approach you and you just your gut is telling you you're not comfortable with them or you just want you just want more information about them, I would definitely ask them for references, especially with a website. That shouldn't be difficult with a web designer. And then also make sure your contract has uh, specific terms that can protect you. As far as the payment goes, I would definitely recommend, say, paying them out after X amount of work is done. I know for me personally, when I've had things like that performed, Let's say after 25% is complete, then I pay 25% less after I've paid the initial deposit. So then that's another way to protect yourself. So you're not giving them all the monies up front. So they can't just, if they do run off, they're not necessarily running off with everything you've given, everything they've contracted for, but only a partial amount, which will also make it somewhat easier to get back in court if you needed to sue them. And another thing would be to make sure that the governing law, if you're local, is in Michigan. Because sometimes if there is a contract, the governing law may be for the law where the company is located. So if possible, I would make it where the governing law is in Michigan or wherever you're located, just to make it easier for you if you need it to sue them. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. And and, and that should as far as if at all possible for all contracts, be it for whatever as a business owner you engage in, we have to remember to have those contracts in your home state because then if something does go to litigation, you have your own attorneys here to to actually um, assist you with those proceedings. But if it's in another state, you literally have to end up getting an attorney in that state to actually litigate it for you and your attorney could possibly be an assisting there with it, but that means you have to bring someone else all the way up to speed. So that's a very good point. Yes, and um, you have to travel travel to exactly. that state. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then another thing you can also do is to even part down even, break it down even further and have it to where you can only have litigation in a specific county. I know some clients prefer to use the Wayne County, Oakland County, Macomb County. So then you don't necessarily have to travel three or four hours, say up to Traverse City for a matter. So that there's there's also another protection that way to where you can make sure that if possible, any type of litigation that if it were to arise can be in your backyard. Absolutely. And then to stay on the the, the concept of, of contract, um, we dealt, obviously we've been talking about the customer side. Let's move over to the employee side. And first, I guess I'm 
start off with allowing you to kind of explain the difference between presenting an employee an offer letter versus what an employment contract is. Because I, one of the things that I see as an HR professional, sometimes employers are entering into employment contracts on a, not knowing they meant to just do an, an offer letter. So can you go over the oh. difference between the two? Well, sure. The offer letter is just primarily giving them a baseline of what they could what they can expect upon employment. So you would definitely want to make sure you include obviously their salary, their position or title and duties. And it's also if you have any restrictive covenants as part of your employment condition, I would also recommend you include that in the offer letter, just so they're aware that they may or may not be subject to a non-compete and any type of other restrictive covenants such as non-disclosure and non-disclosure confidentiality as well as non-solicitation. Mm -hmm. And so from that standpoint, the offer letter is just making them aware of the terms and conditions of their employment if they were to accept uh, okay. the offer you and present to them. Awesome. And is it also good if you're in an at-will state to put that in there to let them know they're an at-will employer? They're at-will employer. Sure. Yes, yes, definitely include that. I would say include that at least twice in the offer letter <laughs> just so there's no confusion. <laughs> now, what, now, how would you explain an employee, an employee contract? I would explain an employee contract as including some of those, well, many of those same terms that were in the offer letter, but it's just making it more explicit and in depth of what they can or cannot do once as an employee. So you would still definitely include those restrictive covenants, include whatever their duties are, as well as any type of terms and conditions that are associated with your specific company okay. and any type of benefits they may or may not be receiving. Okay. And so if they're receiving those benefits and you enter into a contract, is the employer more tied to that person if, if even if the um, relationship ends? Well, they're not tied depending on how that language reads and because you definitely okay. also as in the offer letter, you definitely want to include that they're, regardless of these, the employment agreement, they're still an at-will employee. And so that them signing that agreement does not necessarily make them a just cause employee or you, or an employee for X amount of years. So regardless, okay. you still want to include that at-will language in the contract. Okay. All right. And so because we're talking about risk, therefore, we covered the, so far, we've covered the customer, we've covered the employee aspect of it. Is there anything else that as an employer, when it comes to the employees, that employers need to be mindful of? Definitely, if you utilize independent contractors and not treating your inter independent contractors as employees. That's a mouthful. You want to explain the difference between the two? Because I am sure you, like I, know that they that gets cloudy for some. 
So you want right. to explain the difference and between what the task is? For me, the easiest thing to explain is control. You have an individual that you give a schedule to and you expect them to work a nine to five. And then that's an employee. If regardless if they're working remotely or in the office, you expect for them to clock in and clock out at, at a specific time, then that's an employee, regardless of how you may or may not pay them. If you give them explicit duties and expect these duties to be met, then more than likely, then that's an employee. Awesome. And I would just like to remind our audience that if they have questions, you can call in at 929-477-1199, or you can email us your questions at support at everything, HR, F is in financial, S is in Sam, dot net. Again, that's at support at everything, HRFS dot net. So I'll say that again. It's at support at everything, HR, F is in financial, S is in Sam, dot net. Okay. Now, one of the other things that I typically say going back to the employer or employee versus the independent contractor, I know that a lot of employers will push back on that because, you know, it is expensive having employees. You know, employees, Mm -hmm. they feel as if what they see on their paycheck is the only expense that an employer has. And so that's why a lot of employers will lean towards or try to make them an individual and independent contractor. And so that's why Ms. Adams and myself, we try to step in and end up saying, no, let's really look at the circumstances and see if they're, if that person really is a true employee or in the true independent contractor. And so what I generally tell them to do is go to the IRS.gov and take a look at their checklist when -hmm. it goes to employee versus independent contractor because that tells you what the standard really is. Yes. And you're able to avoid a lot of headaches and Ms. Adams and myself can avoid a lot of arguments and just say, we're just the messenger. We didn't come up with the rule or anything like that. It's already already been established for all of us. And so with that being said, kind of going back to the basics as to when we're setting up our business structure and kind of explain the benefits between one structure versus the other one. Should I remain a sole proprietor and what are my risks if I remain a sole proprietor? And then we'll just kind of walk through each of them. Of, of the business structures. For those that may be joining us and they may be just at that sole proprietor, but they don't recognize the risk that's involved with that sole proprietor. And then those that are at an LLC level, what are still some of the parameters that they have or choices that they have as an LLC or an S Corp? I know there's a lot of confusion with the what is an S Corp versus C Corp. So can you walk us through each of those structures? Yes, sure. Um, With the sole proprietor, that's more than likely you just started a business. You could be selling retail. Maybe you have a booth at a farmer's market or 
something of that nature and you're just more than likely just testing the waters this is something you want to do. So with the sole proprietorship, you really don't have any type of protection because you're not set up as any type of entity. So if someone were to get ill, if you were a baker and someone were to get ill off of your baked goods, then they would have to sue you personally, which would make your personal assets vulnerable to <laughs> any type of pending damages that may come from the litigation if they are successful against you. So with a sole proprietorship, you really have no protection from, say, your home, your car, your bank accounts, or anything like that. So, which is why I encourage individuals, even if you're not 100% sure if a business is what you want to do, to regardless, set up a formal entity and register with the state. I know here in Michigan, it's uh, not too expensive as in other states. Typically, registration fees are $50, and then I believe you pay an additional $25 each annual annually to make sure that you are still a properly registered business in the state of Michigan. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Now, when it goes to the next level, going to an LLC, yes. what are, what, what, you know, this first off, let's describe, oh, I hate using acronyms and not explain them. So, an LLC is a limited liability corporation, and so can we go and let you explain that portion of it, that, that entity for? Sure. Like you said, it's a limited liability corporation, company, they use it interchangeably. And ultimately, with that, the only thing, the only assets that are vulnerable in that instance are those assets owned by the LLC. So an LLC is what I more than likely recommend to people, especially when they're starting out, because it it reduces your risk to whatever is owned by the LLC. So it doesn't make your personal home, your personal assets, your uh, bank account, your personal bank account, vulnerable to any type of litigation if there were to be any type of occurrence. So, but also with the LLC, it's important that you don't commingle your funds and use your LLC funds to pay your mortgage and use your personal bank account, using your LLC bank account as your first personal bank account. So I definitely tell individuals that that it is important for them to keep those two things separate because once you start commingling them and causing a gray area, then that protection that the LLC affords you could be gone and that if need be, someone could go after you personally for whatever damages they may or they may be seeking. And also with LLC, it's important that not only you file your articles of organization, but you also, at the same time as possible, draft up an operating agreement. And this operating agreement is essentially your businesses or the LLC's uh, contract. And it outlines how the 
LLC is going to be governed, what uh, monies individuals have put in, especially if there's a partnership, is definitely important to make sure that that operating agreement is endorsed and accurately reflects what the percent shares are and well the membership interest of each member. So if it's going to be 50-50, 51-49, then that would be explained in the operating agreement and also how profits would be dispersed. As well Absolutely. as any type of terms and conditions that may be specific to your respective LLC. Awesome. Awesome. And so what about an S-Corp? You know, a lot of people have questions about, should I go to being an S-Corp? From a legal perspective and a risk perspective, I guess let's start out explaining what is an S-Corp and then kind of go from there. Is there any legal benefit to becoming an S-Corp? We know that we won't touch the tax time. We have a tax professional coming on in a couple of weeks, a few more weeks. We won't touch the tax aspect of it, but from a legal perspective for an S-Corp, can you see any type of, I guess, risk protections or protections for an S-Corp? From a legal perspective, no. I, I, I can't see any type of benefit. It has other than a tax aspect. Okay. And, and I know so that then, is more, more often than not in the owner's soul motivation is for that tax protect because essentially you can have an LLC and have those same protections, but just have your taxes treated as an S corp. So more often than not, it's depending on how individuals want their taxes treated. I've I've framed. Right. And that's, that's a very good point to kind of make to just make sure that participants know that as an, you can be registered as an LLC, but when it comes time to actually do your taxes, you can do your taxes based as a sole proprietor or as a partner, general partner on there or, or partnership, or you can also end up being a, a, a S Corp or C Corp. So, and we'll cover that as I stated when we do the tax section as to how, as an LLC, you can still file your taxes under either one of those entities. So thank you for at least allowing us to announce that to her or her membership. C-Corp, you want to tell yes. us a little bit about a C-Corp? Yes. It's similar to an LLC. More often than not, it's typically when you have more folks on board, say more than two, because with a corporation, it's governed or run by a board, whereas with the LLC, it can be the members essentially running it, making the business decisions, and um, wearing many different hats from one person to two people to five, whereas with a corporation, all decisions are, for the most part, made by the board. So... Typically, I've seen a lot of businesses start off as an LLC, and then as they grow, they may decide to convert into a corporation, which is feasible. And it's, I like to make that known that just because you start off as an LLC 
doesn't mean you can't convert into a different entity formation. So sometimes as businesses grow, they may decide to convert into a corporation or vice versa, go from a corporation back to or from a corporation to an LLC. So that's also something to think about and not and not you don't necessarily have to be locked into your entity forever. So but with a corporation it's a little bit more detailed because you have to make sure you have meeting minutes. And like I say, you have to have a board governing it. As, and then the board has to make sure that the business is running as they see fit. So as an owner, you kind of sort of lose a little bit of your control that you would have had in an LLC. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Is there any other risk? Before we, we we'll go through a quick recap, we discussed contracts for your client base as well as for our customer, uh, our, our employee base, as, and we talked about independent contractors, and we've discussed, you know, the different type of entities that you can register under. So now, if someone wanted to reach out to you for some of those things, how would they, you want to remind them how they can get in contact with you? Sure, you can get in contact with me by either calling me, 313-702-2222, or you can email me at aa at a squared, A-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D, legal, L-E-G-A-L, dot com, or visit my website, www.asquaredlegal.com. Awesome. 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 So now, what other risks that you're familiar with that business owners need to be aware of? Definitely in your contracts, making sure you look over the indemnity section. I know that can sometimes be a bit confusing with the wording, because I know sometimes for me, it can be a bit confusing. And with indemnity, that's just a fancy word for reimbursement. So most contracts, especially service agreements, have a section with the indemnity that basically says if something were to go wrong, who has to pay for what? And I would just make sure that that language is explicitly protects you from you not having to pay for that customer's negligent. Sometimes it'll make you pay for even if they forgot to do something, you're still going to have to pay for their errors. So I would definitely make sure that that language explicitly states that you're not going to be responsible for any negligence caused by the customer. Awesome. And vice versa. And vice versa. Because, I mean... More often than not, a customer isn't going to want to take responsibility for your negligence either, but you just want to make sure it's mutual. Awesome. Can you also touch on, you made me think of something. Can you touch on the employer protection liability insurance? Yes, I can touch on that a little bit. It's definitely important to have, especially depending on your size. It's very useful. I don't have any firsthand knowledge about it, but I do know I have customers or clients that use it. And just depending on the nature of your business is probably why. 
and to speak with your whoever your insurance agent is to to have make sure you have adequate coverage regarding it because I know it can definitely help with litigation and to alleviate some of those costs. Absolutely, absolutely. So, is there anything else that you can think of that as a business owner? What other things do you see commonly in your practice? Definitely collections, which we spoke about. I can't think of anything that we haven't talked about. I know as of late, the new law regarding paid medical leave has been pretty popular. So um, just making sure folks are ready for that come, I believe, Friday, when that is um, enacted formally and employers have to start abiding by the Paid Medical Leave Act if they already weren't providing that. So, What advice would you give employers to prepare for that if they haven't prepared? If they haven't prepared, what advice would you give them to do that? Uh, Start moving quickly (laughs) and to definitely look over your policy to say how are you currently treating any type of uh, paid leave, whether it's PTO or formal sick leave or anything like that, to look over your current policies to see how you can quickly implement the Paid Medical Leave Act into your current business. Right. And I think where a lot of businesses are, I guess, having a problem is is with the calculation of it. You know, how should they calculate the hours there for them and how do they institute that um, approval process into their, you know, their, their policies and how do they track it? Do you have any tips for them on how they should do that or any recommendations who they should go see? to assist with that whole process because I think that's the majority of the questions that they have with that. Obviously, it's not something they get to say, I want to do or don't want to do if you meet the criteria. So the question is, how do I implement it? Do you have any suggestions on what they should do from that standpoint? Mm, are these individuals that weren't currently accruing? They were yeah. just giving. If they were never bright. Just- they had no policy, no no time off policy, no vacation policy or anything like that. I would suggest probably just doing what the act recommends or at least what the state recommends by doing the every week work, every what is it, I believe every forty hours work, getting one hour or Yeah, thirty five. Every thirty five hours. Yeah, for thirty five uh, hours. Mhm. Yeah. I would recommend yeah. doing that. I think that would be the easiest way to try to implement it, which would definitely probably more likely be your full-time season. So for every 35 hours they work, just trying to make sure you adequately reflect that and allow them to utilize the time as they accrue it. Right. And, and to also, I know one of the things that we've done is to make sure whoever their payroll provider is, that that's mm-hmm. accurately reflected, that it's picking up those hours uh, inside of from their payroll provider. So getting whatever payroll provider that you have and whatever approval process, I know most payroll providers are aware of whatever laws have been passed in every state, so not just okay. Michigan, 
that they can have basically put in place that accrual uh, process so it's automatically picking it up, but it's going to be on the employer to actually call them, alert them, to basically tell them, you know, you need to flip the switch on this because we now have to track this employee's hours. And then making certain when it does become active there on the 29th, you need to make certain that someone is going in and actually checking and making sure it is tracking it because you don't want to not be accurately calculating it, and then you have to go back and actually fix it later. Right. Um, so make put that on your to-do list if you don't already have it on your to-do list mm-hmm. um, there for yourself. Picking up along those same lines as what a, in reviewing our policies and procedures, what is your outlook as far as employee handbooks? Is it a good time to actually update those? and reviewing your current policies and procedures and making sure that, number one, that they're compliant with federal and state, if there were any federal and state changes that may be going into effect. But also, whether you were impacted by this new sick policy or the minimum wage, how do you feel about, you know, an employee handbook and using this opportunity to go through all of your policies and procedures, like a fresh start? Oh, I think it's definitely important to update at least annually your employee handbook because not only do laws change, but also your business changes. So you definitely need to make sure that any type of changes are adequately reflected in your policy so everyone is aware of what is expected in the business. So if you were primarily a business that used independent contractors, but now you have more full-time employees, then your handbook may change to reflect that. Or if your hours have changed or if your break times have changed or anything like that, then definitely. Or if you now have changed your dress code to make it more casual, business casual, opposed to more formal, then definitely you need to update your employee handbook or policies and procedures as needed. Awesome. And then how important is the, I guess, how important is the process of not just updating it, but taking the opportunity to make sure that employees know what's inside of there that you did update? Oh, definitely. Especially nowadays with, with technology, it's easy for you to send an email or some type of electronic correspondence to your workforce and let them know that there have been changes to the handbook and provide them with a link or provide them with the actual file and letting them know what changes were made and what sections they need to look out for just so no one can say they, they weren't aware. And and just to, uh, on the HR side, one of the things that we do, as well as for those HR departments that we support on an every now and then basis, is just tell them if you have frequent meetings, just take a little bit or a portion of your handbook and just kind of go over it. Just pick something out, just two or three minutes, and just remind uh, your employees of whatever policies and procedures that you may have. And also understand that those policies and procedures, those things are going to change, not just based from a regulatory standpoint, but they also are going to change 
based on your customer demand for your product or your service. And so mm-hmm. being able to keep that updated, you know, and, and, and just to make a distinction, your policies and procedures is your secret sauce, the way you do things. The employee handbook can mention your secret sauce, but it doesn't provide or give all of your secret sauce. It just sets the standard as to what your expectation is of your applicants as well as your expectations of your current employees. And so it's there for both when you're taking a look at the employee handbook. And so knowing that that's an integral part of of what you're actually basing your business off of because obviously if we have a good in service and we need employees to get it out to market, we all have to have set rules. We all have to start at, at the same place. And so that's where that handbook comes into place to kind of set some structure because if we don't have structure, things will just run awry. That's just human nature. So we have to have some guardrails up and, and, and let them know what your standard is. And a perfect place to do that is inside of your employee handbook. And knowing that that employee handbook provides that type of, of, of foundational guideline. It's never meant to actually be or cover absolutely everything because it is, you don't want a handbook should never end up being 70, 80 pages and looking like a huge book, it should just be an introduction. And so, because no one's ever going to read that. Um, right. No one's ever going to, no matter how pretty it might look, no one cares how pretty it looks as a business owner if you're not implementing the things that are inside of your handbook. If you mm-hmm. are, no matter what, an unemployment claim or whatever you're responding to, they're going to ask for your policy. And so are you implementing that policy? Are you following it? And so I'm sure you know as an attorney, you've seen people pull stuff off of the Internet. Oh, I like that. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, I'm going to pull this together. I'm pull this together. And so you end up with this whole big pile of things that they pulled off of the Internet that they may not end up, you know, actually implementing or even know why they pulled it from whatever company, different industry, different area, mm-hmm. and they just put it together. I am certain you've seen that. And and it's just, it's not intentional. I mean, it's as a business owner, regardless of your size, you're just trying to mind, be mindful of your budget. So it's not intentional, but it can end up being a legal hazard. And I'm certain you saw that before. Oh, yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Pulling stuff off the Internet, while convenient, can cause trouble at the end of the day. So you can have, similar to what we were speaking about at the beginning, you can have this policy or contract is governed by Rhode Island law, and you're in Michigan, and so you're sort of stuck with Rhode Island law for the basis of your contract, and also, with your contract, you make sure you got to have your harassment and discrimination policy in place. Because if there were ever a complaint and it was filed with the EOC or Michigan Department of Civil Rights, I know that's the first thing they ask for is what is the policy. So definitely got to make sure that that's tight and accurate and adequately reflects 
who reports or complaints are made to. So you definitely have to make sure your handbook reflects your business. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you're, even if, you know, we, we tell our clients, it's, it's you start from scratch with your handbook. You don't cut mm-hmm. and paste. Even from your competitor, you don't cut and paste from your competitor because your competitor is not you. You're, you're mm-hmm. saying that you have a product or service that is superior to your, your competitor. So you don't even try to mirror the way that they're doing things. You end up mirroring the way you, you get the guidelines first for federal, state, and local, and whatever your industry guidelines are. And then you customize that as to how you're going to fulfill those guidelines. And so, yes, it's a little bit of work, but in the long run, it saves you financially and it reduces your risk greatly than you trying to cut and paste something together that was not originally yours and it's not applicable. And so... When they And if they want something from a legal review, that's when they reach out to you for your assistance to be able to provide that there for them so that now they, they have something to stand on from a legal, you know, a legal arm to say, this is not Rhode Island law. This is Michigan law. Or whatever mm-hmm. state your home state is, this is the law that you're actually following. And so that's an awesome thing. Now, we have about a few more minutes to go for those that may not start it out with us initially in the beginning. Just want to kind of debrief what we went over already. We started out talking about contracts for our customers, and then we went to contracts for the employees. Then we went to start to cover and take a look at uh, employee versus an independent contractor. And then we went to the various different business entities that you can, you know, register under or become for registration. And then, obviously, you started talking about the new recent policies as far as paid sick leave here in the state of Michigan and best practices for that, as well as best practices for the employee handbook. Now, if you have a question, we have a few minutes left. The call-in number for your questions is 929-477-1199. And you can also email us at support at everything HR, F is in financial, S is in SAM.net. And since we have just a few minutes more left, Alira, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit more about you again, just to kind of give them a brief summary of you and your practice again, and then how they can get a hold of you. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Once again, my name is Allery Adams with A Squared Legal Group. We're based in Detroit, and our primary practice areas is business law, labor and employment law, and intellectual property. We assist small businesses with their legal needs, whether it's transactional and or litigation, so reviewing contracts or suing over those same contracts. We assist from both ends of the spectrum. And my website is www.asquaredlegal.com, A-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D, legal.com. And I may be reached at A-A, 
at asquaredlegal.com, or you can reach me via phone at 313-702-2222. Awesome. Awesome. And just a reminder to obviously, as especially if you're a small business owner, do understand that in order for us to play in this big market or big sandbox and where we may not be able to have our own on-site legal department, the best thing that we could possibly do is surround ourselves with, obviously, legal counsel there from a business aspect as well as from an employment aspect so that when things do arise, we are able to address them immediately because things will happen. As you're a business owner, things will come up that you have to address. And being able to have proper counsel is extremely, extremely important. And so I highly recommend that individuals reach out to Ms. Adams, talk with her, go to her website, take a look at, you know, her services that she do offer. I Always, always encourage people to talk about how can they establish an ongoing relationship with a professional such as Ms. Adams because do understand, you know your craft, okay, and your good and services much better than anyone else. Let's, the one thing that I see that business owners do, sometimes we have a habit of stepping out of our lane. And when it comes to legal matters, it's never good to do that. So we need to always rely on those that that is their lane. That's their specialty. And so being able to have someone that you can pick up the phone and you can automatically go to is definitely a plus at all times. And so do not hesitate to give her a call. Uh, prior to before we came on the air, I discussed an issue there with her. So I'll be reaching out to her myself on an issue or for an issue on behalf of a client, and so definitely don't hesitate to give her a call, but more importantly, protect your business. I mean, we went over earlier the different structures of a business or establishing a business, but we do that, you know, as a protection, but we also have the other protections, too, as well, and steps that we have to take, and having proper counsel are surrounded by us to handle the various situations that you will encounter. It's not if you will encounter them or you might encounter them. If you stay in business long enough, there are going to be business things, the contract that she started out with, that you're going to encounter, that you have to make sure that you're prepared for. You have to make sure that you have someone that you can turn to and talk something out and, and be able to say, how can or the, what's the best way for us to handle this? And so, as I stated earlier, make certain that you have someone on your side, such as Ms. Adams, that you're able to do that. And it's better to establish a relationship with them before an incident happens. Because now you've developed a relationship and you have rapport and you're able to, it's much easier to go through a problem or a situation with someone that you know. And so being able to connect with that person ahead of time will prove itself to be invaluable when a scenario do come up. And they're there to, to assist you 
and tell you what's the best way to actually handle that particular situation. So I want to thank Ms. Adams for joining us this morning. And certainly I hope that she will be back with us uh, again to talk on a different topic or same topic as different things arise um, there from a regulatory standpoint or just a basic business need. So I definitely want to thank her. I want to also, no, um, I also want to advise others that to join us on next week when we will have another guest speaker on to as well. We will be discussing certification and the benefits of having your business certified as a woman-owned business or a veteran-owned business or as a minority-owned business, and what are the steps in, in actually doing that, and is there any assistance that's out there to help you walk you through the initial process, but also assistance out there that can help you on an ongoing basis, because you have to recertify every based on whatever certification the period is for that. And so there are individuals that are there that can help you with that, and we'll have Pam Smith as being our guest to discuss that on next week. And so my name is Felicia Harris, and I want to thank you again for joining us uh, this morning to discuss reducing business risk through smart legal strategy. And if you need to get in contact with us for any of your HR needs, Obviously, we're here to support you with we have everything to become your HR department, or if you just need our help every now and then, or if you just have a, a general HR question, feel free to reach out to us. The email, as I stated earlier, is support at everything HR, F is in financial, S is in Sam.net. The phone number here is 586-461-1400. We do not just serve Michigan. We serve our people uh, or businesses and organizations across the U.S. If you want to go to our website, it's www.everythinghr.net. Remember the .net, so it's everythinghr.net. And I look forward to seeing you again on next week, uh, Wednesday, same time at 8 a.m., from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., and hopefully you'll tune in. If you would like to take a look at some of our previous podcasts or listen to them, you can go to our website and click on uh, the everythinghr.net under resources and podcasts, and you can take a listen to some of our previous guests, too, as well. Thank you. Thank you.